Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 176. On today's show, we talk about 65,000-year-old Swiss Army knife artifacts, how a drought in Iraq has revealed a 3,400-year-old site, and the most important site in the world. Let's dig a little deeper before the water comes back. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. We are in lovely Port Townsend, Washington area. Well, technically we're in Chimicum. Chimicum, right, which is south of there. Yeah, Port Townsend is actually a pretty cool place, and there's... I, we we passed on the way in a couple times. We've gone into Port Townsend so far, like signs for numerous museums and historical places. Yeah, there's just a lot of history there. Yeah, what did they call it? Like the Victorian Victorian Port Seaport. City? Yeah. Oh yeah, Victorian yeah. Seaport. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ferry dock there. You can see it too in the buildings and the architecture. Yeah. It definitely looks old school. So makes yeah, sense. It's really sure. cool. We're only here for a week, so we're going to try to maximize our viewing of the town and, and and of course the Olympic National Park and National Forest is right next door. Mm-hmm. A lot of cool things and historical things to do in this town and hopefully we can maybe put together some information and talk about it. I don't know. Yeah. That, that would, would be, be really, really cool. cool. It's a yeah. neat area for sure. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. If we do go to the Olympic National Park, you better bring a Swiss <laughs> Army knife, but not the 65,000 year old one. Hold on. We're Leatherman people though. Oh yeah. So. Swiss Army Leatherman. That's right. <laughs> So this first article is called 65,000-year-old, quote, a Swiss army knife, unquote, proves ancient humans shared knowledge, research says. Mm-hmm. And the one that we're linking to, there's one from The Guardian, and, and it's, it's all over the place, though, if you try to find it. And they actually link to a few places in here. It says, if you, there's a link in here that says published in scientific reports, but that just takes you to nature's scientific reports. And it's not the actual link to the article. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't even try clicking yeah, on that. Yeah, I did. And it annoying. was it was very unsatisfactory. Yeah, totally. Because so. I'd like to see the original right. article. So anyway, some notes about this article. Researchers think that a stone tool dating to about 65,000 years ago United ancestors of modern Homo sapiens and proves that they were communicating with each other. Hmm. Uh, this tool, the same tool, was found across southern Africa, and different groups made it using the exact same shape, the same template, and this indicates to the researchers that they had a shared knowledge, or mm-hmm. at least a passing knowledge from tribe to tribe, neighboring each other. Right, right which right. is actually a real thing. The cultural transmission of information of is knowledge, how. Yeah is how, you know, we, we learn new things sometimes and how those things get passed on. Yeah, and you can see that physically happening sometimes because you'll see stone material types that yeah. aren't 
naturally found in an area, you'll find them there. And it's it's because that that cultural transmission from one tribe or group to another takes this obsidian from, you know, Washington and gets it all the way over right. to Minnesota. So like you can see that in the physical objects and there's no reason to think that it's not happening in like the lithic technologies and any of the other things that they develop as a group. Right. And your example actually illustrates two different things. One of them is trade. Yeah. You know, because yeah. if you have a source material one way, one place and it shows up 10,000 miles away or mm-hmm. 2,000 miles away. Right. Then that indicates that it was either passed on or like a dude walked 2,000 miles, which is unlikely. Unlikely. Right. Yeah. So it was probably traded for. Mm-hmm. But see, even that trading of a particular thing, if it's not like raw material, if it's already something that's made, it could indicate to people who have never seen this shape before, mm-hmm. oh, what what could this be? Is this is cool? Yeah. Never thought to do that before. Yeah, totally. If they're like, oh, whoa, I love the shape of that spear. Yeah. Let's trade for it. And then they right. take that back. And all of a sudden, they have an example that they can start developing their own version of that same shape and it right. might not be exactly the same but you still you have to use the same techniques to get close to the same shape so indeed yeah that definitely yeah. happens so this particular tool which we'll talk about in a little bit here was produced in literally massive quantities across southern africa from about 60 to sixty-five thousand years ago mm-hmm. so one thing that happened in that time frame from about 60 to seventy thousand years ago mm-hmm. was somewhat of a mass exodus from africa and the Homo sapiens that we're, that we're talking about here. Now, there were Neanderthals living in Europe already, yeah. right? But the Homo sapiens that we're talking about here, they all, all modern Homo sapiens right now today are derived from the people that left Africa around this time. Right. These right? are our ancestors who are yeah. leaving Africa. They go out, they populate the rest of the, the continents that are all kind of interconnected there. And a little bit. For, well, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. went to a certain few areas. There's some thought that some went into China first. And yeah, then yeah. Yeah. A little more, you know, homo sapien evolution and then kind of populated out. And there's, I, I don't think the exact migratory okay, routes so are exactly it's known. It's not like this, this obvious dispersal. But anyway, they, yeah. we all can trace our ancestry back to this group that is leaving right. Africa though in some way or another. But the point with this is, is that the fact that these people in Southern Africa seem relatively well interconnected based on the stone tool evidence makes to the researchers anyway, this mass exodus, a little bit of an interesting thing. Like, like why would they? Yeah. Why, why now? Why in conjunction yeah. with this knowledge of each other, you know, why would everybody just decide to bail? You mm-hmm. know, like where are they going? What's happening? What's going on? Although you could, you could think that having this interconnectedness between peoples might help them have the resources and the, I don't know, gumption maybe to leave yeah. because they're bolstered by all this additional knowledge that they're getting by sharing between each other, maybe. Well, yeah. And I think that what they're thinking here is that the fact that they had this this tool, basically, it wasn't the only thing that they had, but the fact that they all had this tool, apparently, made it so they, they could do a versatile number of things. And they might have mm-hmm. thought, like you said, you know, the gumption, they, they might have just been encouraged by the you know for exploration and the fact that hey you know what we've got this thing here and well they would have thought that but yeah they would have thought we have the ability and the tools so to speak to basically go anywhere we want and mm-hmm. maybe let's start branching out yeah you know so and i'm sure there was a lot of climactic reasons and other reasons that we're, we're not discussing here but sure there was previous excursions from the continent in a mass way mm-hmm. by earlier um if not homo sapiens earlier species uh-huh. right because like homo Erectus and Habilis, I think, are found outside of Africa. Yeah. Definitely Erectus. I'm not so sure about Habilis. Okay. Yeah. And and other versions of Homo that are not Homo sapiens, you know, are found outside of Africa. So there were definitely previous ones, but they were less successful than this one because obviously we are a product of, of this, this time frame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this tool 
known as the stone Swiss army knife, as we said in the beginning, Mm -hmm. was used for many things, including cutting, drilling, skinning, lots of different things. Kind of a catch-all tool. It could do all those (laughs) different things. Yeah. In in Southern Africa, they were, and I'm I'm not saying South Africa on purpose because that's like a country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the southern Southern part of the continent. Yeah. Yeah. They were also used as barbs in hunting technology. So you'd actually like place these into the edges of like a spear or I don't think they had arrows back then, but like a spear tip. Okay. And then they'd be more barbs versus just a tip. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Really powerful for getting through large game. And some of these are found as much as 1200 kilometers apart in Southern Africa. And there was part of the study in the paper said that, or at least in the article said that you can walk about a hundred kilometers in a week. I think it said or something like that. Oh yeah. 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 And so, yeah, they're talking about this being like, like at least five days walk between some of these places if not yeah, yeah yeah so it's um so that's that's 1200 kilometers is a long way it's yeah. like it's a real commitment yeah you know to pass this from from group to group but then the article goes on to say that the tool was made independently near the same time frame <laughs> by many groups of people across, across the, world, the world including australia yeah this is where like the whole thing like it's a great narrative but it does kind of break down for me <laughs> yeah and this tool, what we would call this if we were to find one today, and we have found lots of stuff like this mm-hmm. in like Nevada's Great Basin, California, where yep. we've done a lot of work. Yep. It's basically an edge modified flake. Yeah. It it could be considered. Yeah, it could be considered a biface. Um, if it's if it's biface, just means that it's been worked on both sides, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be. And in fact, a lot of the pictures they show show no modification on one side. It's basically a really nice flake that's kind of a crescent shape. So if you were thinking about holding it in your hand or holding it in your your first three fingers, your thumb and your first two fingers, mm-hmm. you could really like poke with this thing. You could attach it to a stick and drill with one of the mm-hmm. sharp ends. You could, again, slide it into the side of a shaft for a, for a barb. You could use it as a point if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've seen this so many times because you so always times. come across these artifacts where you're like, which category exactly does this fall into? It kind of looks like it's modified on this one edge here, but this over here looks like it could have been used yeah. as a scraper. And you kind of have like the striking platform is almost coming to a point. So maybe that was used as a drill. So like you have all these different things going yeah. on in the same artifact and you're like, what do we call it again? Right. So, well, and here's why an edge modified flake is not like a revolutionary tool. I mean, yeah, it can be used for lots of different things, but honestly, if you're just banging rocks together and eventually one comes off because this is not an uncommon shape to make when you're actually flint napping. A lot of things when you're flint napping something round or oval shaped, like this is a common thing to come Mm -hmm. off. And when you're looking at it, you're like, man, I don't have to do anything to that. I yeah. can cut some stuff with that. Yep. You know, it just comes off with a nice sharp edge naturally. Yeah. If yeah. you're using a nice material, you probably don't even have to do anything to yeah. it. But then once you do use it, and this is a natural technological progression, once you do use it, you might notice that it's getting a little dull and you're a, you're a flint napper. Mm-hmm. You know how to do these things, or at least you know how rudimentarily how to do these things. I mean, by 60 to 70,000 years ago, they were getting... I would say in the context of people who know how to flint nap, they were starting to get pretty good at it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. they weren't making like fine worked, you know, spear tips, but they were getting pretty close. Mm-hmm. The were basics making were there. pretty solid tools at this. Yeah. Point, so, I mean, the basics yeah. were there. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you look at it and you're like, well, what if I just like bang off a few little bits of this thing and, and start, yeah. Bit. And start yeah. modifying it. Then you're, then you, then you start doing some work to it. And maybe at some point you think, well, let's make these intentionally mm-hmm. and then, you know, work the edges of the less perfect ones into the shape mm-hmm. that we want. And that's where you get like an edge modified flake. Yeah. I haven't done a whole lot of napping, but I have done like the, the tiniest little smidgen of it. 
and just doing it, just having your hands on the material and doing it, you immediately see how people would have come up with this at yeah. any point in history. They just would immediately realize what's going on. Like you strike off that first flake and you're like, oh, all right, awesome. This is like a nice sharp edge. You don't need to do anything else. It'll work. And then the second you start trying to do anything with it, that edge could crumble, right? right. So what do you think? Oh, hmm, maybe if I put some little tiny flakes on it on the other side of that edge going mm-hmm. the other direction... All of a sudden, you've got two. Stability. Yeah, it, it stabilizes it. It makes it so it won't break so easily. I mean, it's just a natural progression. So even my like handful of times I've tried napping, which did not go well, <laughs> I did not yeah. make anything that resembled a a good tool. But you, it's easy to see how that natural progression would have happened for people. Right, right, indeed. Well, I mean, as far as the fact that this tool has not only been found across Southern Africa, but probably literally everywhere in the world yeah. and and not just 65,000 years ago, but like now, mm-hmm. you know, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, because it's a, it's a easy thing to make. It's very useful and versatile. And, you know, I, I was thinking the, the way this kind of thing could develop through a cultural transmission idea is yes, you know, you, you do see nearby neighboring groups. You might see the remnants of their hunts or kills or something like that, where they left some tools behind. Mm-hmm. And then you might think that's a good idea. And, you know, the people of Southern Africa in particular, where this study was, you know, they were in the same environment, eating the same things, killing the same things Mm -hmm. with the same raw material. So the fact that they would come to the same conclusions regarding tools doesn't seem too far out of the realm of possibility. The one Mm -hmm. thing that lends credibility to this story to me without actually being able to talk to the researchers, because really we're reading articles that that have been distilled by media. Yeah. But... And I'm sure this is a well-researched thing, and I don't want to blow too much, you know, of it out of the water. I know. It'd be really great if we could see the actual article, but... Right. I mean, we're just trying to think critically about this with the information we're given. Mm -hmm. So, But I think the one thing that lends credibility to this is that it's implied that evidence of this tool doesn't really exist in the quantities they have prior to 65,000 years Mm -hmm. or 60,000 years. Mm -hmm. And, well, I guess 60 to 65,000, that range. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after that, things start to explode. So somebody kind of came on this idea as they're getting better at flint napping. And then that idea spread like wildfire. It sounds like, and wildfire in the context of history, because 5,000 years isn't exactly wildfire, but yeah, you know, that's a long time. I mean, it seems possible, but it also seems equally possible that there were sort of like pockets of people all across the area who probably developed the same idea around the same time. And that's what allowed it to spread so quickly and so evenly, too. Right. Because if you see it across such a large period all at the same time, it just seems like that would be too fast for it to be spread by humans, right? Well, here's the thing, too. We look at these big numbers like 65,000 years ago and we're like, yeah, I mean, 5,000 years in that long a period of time. I'm sure we could see this, you know, transmitting. It's, I mean, 5,000 years from now, we were building pyramids in Egypt. You know what I mean? Like, Like the Americas was... You know, hunter gatherers and and not a lot of you know construction of buildings and stuff going on. And you know, across the planet, we were just trying to figure out who we were and and starting to get into bigger groups. And mm-hmm. five thousand years is a long time. And even if you had one group, worst case scenario, that was like, look at this tool, and they just like them and their descendants pass this all around Southern Africa. You know, over the next thousand years, which is even inconceivable in that rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a long time. It's a long time. You know, yeah. so the fact that this tool came around, I'm willing to bet that it took generations to pass maybe mm-hmm. from one tribe to the next. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, how often did they communicate with each other? The fact that they're saying that because this was found everywhere in such massive quantities over this period of time that they were communicating with each other. 
I'd have to see more detail about like population density mm-hmm. and stuff like that to really believe it. Yeah, definitely. So, I agree. Yeah. Anyway. Well, regardless of the number of things that this tool could do, there's one thing it couldn't do, and that's stop a drought in Iraq, <laughs> which is good for us because it's making new things come out of the water. Let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 176. And now we're going to talk about Iraq which is in one of the worst droughts it's seen in decades. Mm -hmm. And the drought has basically been caused by, well, what droughts are caused by, a lack of rainfall. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But also poor conservation of the rainfall they do have Mm -hmm. and the water they do have, poor resource management. Yeah, and it's like overall probably global warming is contributing to all of this as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, Yeah, it's all all part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, In an attempt to give people more water on short-term basis, Mm -hmm. the authorities for the Mosul Dam in Iraq, which blocks the um, reservoir behind it, Mm -hmm. drained it down a bit. Okay. Uh, So they basically drained down the reservoir by released more water down the dam, Mm -hmm. which downstream ultimately gave people more access to water for irrigation and things like that. Yep. So this city, which actually showed up in a couple droughts before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they knew about this city. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like nobody knew about it. Yeah, it was not a mystery. It It was there and everybody knew it was underwater. And in fact, the archaeologists that were here from the sounds of it the in the article i read it sounds like they had a little bit of advance warning of this like they knew it was going to happen yeah they mobilized people and they got Mm -hmm. there quick because it's not like in the drought that's happening in california right now they're probably leading towards that direction but these guys drained water out of the reservoir to give people more resources Mm -hmm. and then basically shut it off yeah and brought it back to normal and now it's filling back up yeah right because all this took place back in like february or march even though the articles are just coming out now Anyway, so that's where they were. They were in a race against time. They knew probably knew exactly how much time they had mm-hmm. to do some more research on this. And just really quick, if anybody is sitting at home appalled that a, you know, important cultural resource could be covered by water in a reservoir, I think we should point out that it's actually like pretty common. Yeah. And like your thesis was based on a site that was underwater by is the still or underwater. is still currently underwater. <laughs> yeah. So now in the United States, there's like laws and regulations that force, you know, people to manage the sites to do whatever cultural resource protection needed yeah. to happen before they were allowed to flood it. So at least in your case, you had all the artifacts from the site and knew all the details in the data Notes, about maps. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All that. It stuff. has just never been analyzed. Exactly. It was all properly recorded, but just not right. analyzed. So, and that is what happens in the United States, at least post 1966 and the, the laws that required yeah. people to do that basically. Yeah. And it wasn't super great in the seventies either because to be honest, there was a law, the, the National Historic Preservation Act said, 
yeah, you got to do these things. You know, there's mm-hmm. like a paragraph in there. We call it Section 106, although yeah. it's been renumbered since then. It's literally no longer called Section 106. But we still call it that. We still call it that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was mostly universities in the 70s that were taking care of this. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people that got their PhDs in archaeology in the 70s started seeing the opportunities and started creating what we call cultural resource management firms. Mm-hmm. And most of your firms around today, your pure archaeology houses or the ones that have been bought up, by larger engineering and construction firms mm-hmm. were founded by people who got their PhD in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. 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 They saw and the in, opportunity. Right. It's an industry that was built around this law basically. Yeah. So that's how that came about. But, but yeah, it just, it wasn't uncommon for a reservoir to cover. I mean, what, what else is going to happen there? Like if you decide you're going to put a reservoir somewhere, they're man-made, you, you're going to be covering some cultural resources. That's just the way it's going to go. I mean, here's the thing. People have lived next to rivers forever yeah right it's a good water source animals come there i mean there's Mm -hmm. a lot of good reasons to live next to a river and iraq was no different Mm -hmm. this reservoir is fed by i don't think it's the tigris and the euphrates but those two rivers like you know feed everything in iraq and there's tons of flooding and yeah right right so this uh reservoir was bound to have stuff alongside of it Mm -hmm. and they knew it was there in the 80s when the dam was created. Yeah. Like I said, locals knew it was there. Everybody yeah. pretty much knew it was there. But they didn't really do much with it. They just right. didn't, There's not right. the same laws in place in Iraq as there are here in this country or in other countries right. to protect at it. At least not at that time. Yeah. So it was just flooded with no work done and everybody knew about it, but it wasn't of concern yeah. at that time. But it's of concern now. <laughs> Indeed. So the city... Archaeologists believe the city is the possibly the 3,400-year-old city for the Mitanni Empire. Oh. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. But that's what they think it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have long to, again, examine the remains of the city. And it's back underwater now. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that, too. Yeah. The city was actually destroyed in 1350 BCE by a earthquake. The buildings and artifacts that survived were never fully investigated. Mm -hmm. So parts of it survived, you know, parts of it was there, but it was basically abandoned around that time and just kind of left for a couple thousand years. Yeah. Till till now. Yep. In 2018, there was another major drought and the lake was drained Mm -hmm. and the city was the the city was basically partially visible. At Mm -hmm. that time, they got to do some recording they saw a lost palace with 22 foot high walls that's crazy yeah some of them some of them up to six feet thick Mm -hmm. the remains of wall paintings painted in like vibrant reds and blues yep and all kinds of stuff Uh, but they didn't really have time to map the whole thing then they were they were really just more concerned at that time with my god look at that look Mm -hmm. at that look at that it was almost like holy crap look at all this stuff right like they knew it was there but they didn't know how extensive it was and they didn't know how well preserved it was going to be either too so i think that was kind of a shock that something that had been underwater for 40 years or whatever was actually in really good shape so now not only are they doing excavation but they're doing extensive mapping or they Mm -hmm. did you know when this was uh, arranged it's it's back underwater again right it's back underwater Yeah, yeah yeah so but archaeologists from the University of Tübingen and also the University of uh, Freiburg, I'm not for sure if I'm even pronouncing those right, mm-hmm. but they found numerous large buildings. Seems like an industrial complex that they found. Fortification walls, towers, a multi-story storage building. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a thriving yeah. a thriving city. Huge. Um, yeah. They noted what they called the huge magazine building, which is kind of like the, the storage building, which would have held massive amounts of goods from around the region, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as people came in for trade and, and things like that. The walls were extremely well-preserved. They found, this is really cool, very well-preserved ceramic vessels, five of them, in fact, containing, amongst the five, over 100 cuneiform tablets, some still in their, like, clay envelopes. Yeah, So so these tablets had clay envelopes around them. Yeah. 
for security so nobody could read them. And yeah. they're hoping that once they can, you know, kind of get these opened up, honestly, mm-hmm. and, and read them, that they could shed some light on what the city and daily life was like, because they think some of these might be personal in nature. Yeah, that is so cool. And that's yeah. so funny because that came up in a one of our past episodes where we were talking about like the first letters or first envelopes, yeah. basically. Yeah. And I had no idea. I'm still shocked that they used basically clay to make an envelope. Yeah. And it was the best kind of security because you cannot get into it without breaking it. Therefore, somebody will always know that you've sure. been inside their mail. If you do, I love it. That's I mean, amazing. They won't know, but can't you just like make more clay? And, like oh. reseal it? Ooh, but then there was a, a seal. There's probably there's, a seal. There's a seal too, yeah. but you, yeah, I'm sure you probably seems get around like, it. Seems but... like thievery and replicability was like, is easy to forge stuff. <laughs> but maybe like you could put something special on the inside mm-hmm. that would also be broken and couldn't be replicated. I don't know. I'm maybe. sure there are ways. Maybe. I love it though. So we mentioned this being a city of the Mitanni Empire possibly, and mm-hmm. they think more specifically it could be the ancient city of Zakhiku, which was a major hub that lasted from about 1500 to 1350 BCE. So mm-hmm. it kind of fits with what they found and it fits with the, the, the abandonment of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Well, I imagine those enveloped cuneiform letters or tablets yeah. might help with this question. Oh, if indeed. they can get them open and see what yeah. they say on the inside. Yep. The uh, Mitannis themselves, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but they fell to the Hittite empire around 1360 BCE. Mm. And in fact, the Hittites didn't stick around. I think I read in the article that it was the Assyrians that actually ended up settling here. Mm-hmm. So, but they never brought the city back to its to its glory. As we mentioned with the flooding, global warming is hitting Iraq pretty hard in particular, and probably a lot of countries in the, the Fertile Crescent, so uh-huh. to speak, right there. Yeah. The Middle East, because temperatures are, seem to be rising twice as fast as the global average. Oh, wow. Average rainfall is down by 10% mm-hmm. and historic wetlands have basically dried up. Livestock are dying and people are struggling to get fresh water all over the place. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's already a tough landscape. So to throw worse drought into the mix. Right. Yeah. That's that's going to be hard. As we mentioned, they've already refilled the reservoir. Yeah. And they'll probably, if this drought continues, they might get some more chances to, to see this to thing. more. Yeah. But the team, in preparation for that, because they had actually done quite a bit of excavation, they covered the site in tarps and gravel before the reservoir was refilled. I wonder why. I would almost think that well, water would be a better preservation agent than... Well, water's always got currents and stuff inside oh, of it, and yeah, currents it be, can erode. Yeah, yeah. You it know? could be pulling things out. Yeah. I did. I do remember reading, and I think it was in the Smithsonian article, that... Part of the reason they think that the preservation of the walls is so great is because because of that earthquake that happened in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. it caused the top stories of these really tall buildings to collapse down onto the bottom stories. And that collapse of material like socked in the bottom walls and preserved them or helped to preserve them. Yeah. So I think that's pretty cool. And I guess throwing more tarps and gravel on top of it will help preserve it even more. So yep. that's, that's cool. All right. Well, one place that has... I hope never been underwater. <laughs> Potbelly Hill. Mm. You might know it by another name. Let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 176. And as I mentioned, we're going to Potbelly Hill, (laughs) which in Turkish is actually Gobekli Tepe. 
Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Mm-hmm. And this is the literally world famous like historic site. Oldest site ever yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about that. But it's this article I was reading is actually just it's called the Turkish Hilltop where civilization began. It's not news. No. It's, there's nothing in here that's news. No, it's just really cool. Yeah. It's just a, it's such a cool site and yeah. it's just cool to talk about it and know that it exists. Right. <laughs> the article from fizz.org actually says that, and I think they're probably right, the site in Turkey here is probably the most important archaeological site on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I totally agree with that. I mean, important is a weird word. It is weird. Yeah. It depends on your definition of important. Right. I think because, yes, it's very, very old. I mean, 12,000 years ago old, right? Well, And people were doing stuff here 12,000 years ago that they weren't really doing anywhere else. Yeah. So there's that. So it's like the birthplace of modern humanity, I guess you could say, which does make it very important, but it is a little bit subjective to, to call it that. Yeah. Some of the, you know, important things about this, and you can see this in the articles, is there were... Thousands of prehistoric people at a time, mm-hmm. they think, gathered around the highly decorated T-shaped megalith pillars to worship, worship mm-hmm. the the gods that they had written on these pillars or uh, inscribed on the pillars. Mm-hmm. More than 7,000 years before Stonehenge, before the earliest Egyptian pyramids, mm-hmm. before all that. Before we have any other evidence of people gathering in such a right. ritualistic type of way. They believe the settlement began, which is near the Syrian border, some 12,000 years ago, as we said. They also believe the site was actually never inhabited, although that's contradicted later yeah, in this article. Yeah, this article is kind yeah. of talking about how that might not necessarily yeah. be true, but we'll get to that. Right. That's what they've kind of believed, I guess, through Go, most of yeah. the archaeological history of this. Yeah. Used for ritual use only. And there are also maybe older sites on nearby hilltops. Which is crazy to me. I'm like, why is that still a question? Yeah. If we know that this is such an important site and that other hilltops might have the same thing going on or even older, like, why are we excavating that? But- I guess well, that's kind of a tough question. I know. And we might be here shortly because building on the success of the, I guess, the world fame of Gobekli Tepe mm-hmm. and, and the tourism it brings in, there's a whole thing over it, a structure. You oh. can go there. You can take pictures that you can learn about it. But people mm-hmm. are still actively working on it as well. And it has really taken the the nearby town of San Lurfa, Lurfa. I don't know how to pronounce that. San Lurfa. Um, <laughs> but it's <laughs> sure that yeah. works. <laughs> but tourists are flocking to the city. Yeah, the economy of the city is just booming. It's also interestingly enough because it's like right next to Syria, um, a haven for Syrian refugees, and oh. they they actually now comprise about a quarter of the population oh, of the wow. city. Yeah. Uh huh. So, anyway, again, building on this success, the country has put together what they call the Stone Hills Project, mm-hmm. and. Hoping to do more excavation yeah. at all of these different hills around that might have older sites on them, I guess. Exactly. And yeah. one of those is called the Karahan Tepe Hilltop Site, about 35 kilometers from Gobekli Tepe and thought to be older. But oh. I don't know what they have as evidence towards that yet. Yeah. And I wonder if they're more like residential kind of occupations or if it's more of this ritualistic like hilltop worshiping thing yeah. going on or what. I'd be very interested to see what they what they end up finding out about those. Yeah. One of the newer things they've found about Gobekli Tepe is there is some newer evidence that some of the people who live there could have been related to current northern Syrians. Oh, cool. Right? Yeah. Or, you know, cuz back then there was no Syria, there was no Turkey. Mm-hmm. So, but people from that area cuz they found some buildings that seem to be similar. Okay. Now, I don't think this would have been 12,000 years ago cuz the the site was actually used for quite some time. Yes. Yeah. Um, but 
there a connection with northern Syria is being made with mm-hmm. the the design of these buildings. That is interesting because that is the kind of thing that would be like we were talking about in segment well, one with the transfer of information between people and kind of being skeptical right. of it a little bit. But with the building structure and shape and all that, it can be pretty pretty stylized and pretty typical of an area. So as that- we learned, they must have known each other, and I'm surprised the title <laughs> of the article wasn't "World's First Internet Created in Gobekli Tepe." So well, with with architecture and like building shape, I'm a little bit more inclined to believe it because that's yeah. harder to just come up with on your own, independent, the same shape and style of building. Yeah. So I would say just Google Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. Um, look at it in our show notes, and you can see it. Mm-hmm. There is so much information out there about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, check it out. It's a really cool site. That's pretty much the end of this episode of the podcast. But for members, we do have a bonus segment coming up. Yeah. And it's a pretty cool, just kind of like something that, I don't know, It we were watching some TV show or something and I thought about I thought about this. I'm not going to spoil it right now, but it was just a really cool thing. I kind of did a deep dive on it and it's going to be in our members only content. So okay. if you're not a member, check out arcpodnet.com forward slash members for $7.99 a month. I've, one of our members actually emailed and said I said seven ninety nine a day. That <laughs> you know did. I miss if, that. <laughs> if we were getting seven ninety nine seven ninety nine a day from all our members, even our current members, like, like I wouldn't be doing anything else. So <laughs> we could just be generating yeah, content all day long. Basically. Every day. Yeah. yeah. It'd be all podcasting. No, that all the would time. be way too much. Yeah. But it's not. It's seven ninety nine a month and that actually you get a twenty five percent discount if you get an annual membership. Mm-hmm. And again, you you don't to be honest, you don't get a whole lot. You get some communication channels to us you get this bonus content, you really get what helps us out is supporting us in our mm-hmm. uh, our efforts to do podcasting. To make more content. So, and yeah. you get a sweet screensaver. Not screensaver. That's like not screensaver. Not Windows 97 yeah. screensaver. Sorry. Yeah, it's really just the APN logo <laughs> bouncing from corner to corner and edge to edge. So, no, no I made some. Yeah, I made a wallpaper on Rachel's suggestion using yeah. actually the, the Cabo San Lucas arch yeah. uh, picture we took back in February. Mm-hmm. So, with the APN logo, you can go get that on yeah. the Slack member channel. Yeah. So, if you are a member, go check out your the general channel on Slack and you can download it right there. It's pretty high <laughs> resolution, so it should fit on any device. I'm using it on my iPad right now. Mm hmm. So yeah, check that out. Again, thanks to all our members who do support us. And for those of you that uh, choose not to be members, that's fine. That's most of you. Just share this with somebody. Yeah, just tell yeah. your people. Anybody yeah. who's a history nerd and likes to know about old right. stuff. <laughs> Whatever podcast app you're listening to this on right now, or especially if you're on the web or something, but chances are you're on a podcast app, look for the share icon and send that out to three people via text message right now. And see if they like it. We challenge you. That's right. And <laughs> if you happen to be an Australian safety professional listening to this, uh, I'm not speaking about anybody in particular, we appreciate you as well. Tell all your Australian buddies. <laughs> wow. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.